Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here with you. I am your host. As another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour our first email comes in from sean sean writes in and says hey no i'm looking for a device preferably open source that tells me whether or not the garage door is open or closed and that can be attached to my current garage door opener thanks love the show so sean you've got a couple of options i'm going to go through them for you uh so first things first it, it's worth noting that while i probably wouldn't purchase one and use one Many of the newer garage door opener systems actually include monitoring of the door being open and shut and also include native integration into things like Home Assistant. And so if you're looking for the fastest, uh, least expensive, easiest way to monitor your garage door opener, it's probably something worth considering. Now, I wouldn't do it that way because I don't want to be beholden to any one particular company or any one particular software. Who knows what it's talking to? Haven't done any research into any of that. So. I personally would go with a generic solution. So how do we detect doors when they're open or closed? Well, it turns out this has been long since established in the access control world, and it's it's done with something called a door sensor, a door monitoring sensor. And essentially the way it works um, is uh, that you have a magnet uh, and next to a little receiver. And when the doors are separated or when the magnet is separated from the little receiver, the door is considered open. When the magnet is in line, it's considered closed. Now, on a garage door, I've seen it done a couple of different ways. They do, you can do like an outdoor mounted sensor and you can put it on the outside of the, uh, of the garage frame. You just have to make sure to put it uh, either at the bottom or you have to use a very uh, a small sensor that it won't hang up as the garage door rolls on its track uh, inside. The other way I've seen it done, probably the more common way I've seen it done because it gets it out of the elements um, and also there's a, there's a security aspect to it is they'll mount the sensor on the inside down kind of where the, uh, the laser trip is. And so it's a, it's a fairly straightforward install on one side. You're going to have the actual sensor. The sensor basically has a little metal bar inside of it. And when uh, a magnet is placed close to the sensor, that little magnet, that little bar, uh, jumps to the front of the enclosure and thereby completes two little metal contacts. And so if you're monitoring that circuit, you'll see continuity when the door is closed and you will see no continuity when the door is open. So we can then translate this into a circuit, right? The circuit is a normally closed circuit. Anytime the door is shut, the, the, the circuit is completed. Anytime the door is open, the, the circuit is broken. And so you can do something as trivial as tie that into an alarm system. And so if you had like a like a uh, like a Honeywell um, alarm board, you could tie that in as a zone, and it would simply violate the zone anytime the the door is opened and report that to you. Um, or you can interrogate uh, that sensor with something like Home Assistant and say, "Hey, what is the what is the status of the sensor?" Um, I- I- any of those ways would would accomplish uh, uh, what you're trying to do. Um, 
personally, if, if I, if I woke up in your shoes and I was looking for a way to monitor a door, I would tie that to either an access control system, an alarm system or something like home assistant. You could do it with an individual sensor. You could monitor just that one door. But something tells me if you're interested in knowing if that door is open, you might be interested in knowing if your front or back door is open. And once you start getting into multiple doors, it's just much easier if it's something like a security system. So you could get like a Vista a 20p panel from Honeywell for, a, for you know, 100 bucks, uh, 200 bucks somewhere in there by the time you get done with the power supply and a battery. And um, and then from there, you could interface that to, to a whole bunch of other things. So that that's kind of the direction I would go. But the, the, no matter how you want, no matter what you want to do with the information, the way to monitor the door is undoubtedly with the door sensor, unless I say like you want to go the smart route. Our second email comes in from Reed. Reed writes in and says, hi, Noah. Thanks for all that you do. Your enthusiasm for problem solving is inspiring. I'm a mathematician and I love working on my old fashioned chalkboard. However, sometimes I would like to save my work to look at it later. I'm imagining a setup where I wall mount a camera in my office and press a button and it captures a picture of the board and then stores that somewhere accessible. Do you have any camera recommendations? I've heard many video camera recommendations on your show, but not many photo camera recommendations. Is there a simple way, perhaps an FFmpeg one-liner where I can automatically undo or the skew of some of my chalkboard in the photo since the picture might be taken at an angle or crop out just part of the chalkboard? Any advice you have for the situation would be much appreciated. Thanks, Reed. So a couple of options. I, I, I looked first at still cameras and kind of thought about that a little bit. Um, if you positioned it right and you had the right lighting and you purchased the right lens and you set all the settings right on the camera and then nothing changed, the best possible way, the best possible way to capture that chalkboard is probably with something like a DSLR uh, pointed directly at the chalkboard. And I actually, I worked on a project. It was kind of a unique project. It was, it was in conjunction with the university and they were studying um, basically uh, civilizations that, that spoke very obscure languages where there was only a few people that spoke that language. And what they wanted to do was document what the languages were and what the culture was and all of that. And so my portion of that was there were a bunch of artifacts um, that and, and tapes and records and CDs and, and so on and so forth. And my part of it was to digitize all of that, uh, all of that library inventory. Um, but then for the cover or for the art that would go on top of it, we wanted, they they wanted, I should say, um, an image representation of the picture, the CD, the record or whatever. And so in that particular scenario where our, our problems are similar was that they had an analog thing that they wanted to capture. Now, every tape had to look the same, right? You couldn't have like one a little further back, one a little further forward. They all had to be positioned exactly the same because it had you know, depending on which one you were pulling up, they all had to be consistent. You couldn't have them jumping around. Um, and that's exactly what we did. We set up a jig, we set up a, 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 um, a camera. And so when one of those, when one of those artifacts would come in, uh, we would take it, we'd place it in the little jig and push the, push the shutter button. We had all the environmental variables set up. We even, we had a little, uh, for that, we had a little, it was basically like a little white piece of plastic, little texture, white piece of plastic that had a, two pieces of string. And and so if you imagine four holes in the four corners and then a string between each of the two holes and then you shorten the string, the piece of plastic wants to bend up a little bit. And that served as the backdrop that we placed our jig in and took the picture of all these things. It worked out really well. Um, and so I, I went down that path originally, but it's it would be a fairly cost 
it was a you know be a fairly costly solution and then on top of that if you ever change anything you're kind of hosed so uh what i would do if i woke up in your shoes is i would go with something like a document camera now a document camera is really designed for distant learning or video conferencing but the idea is this is you have a camera that that's on some sort of a flexible mounted arm and so the positioning of the camera is is um, is quite flexible and and then you point it at whatever the thing is that you want to capture and the, the whole purpose of a document camera is to turn what was um what was analog material into digital material that can be then shared with a zoom conference so a typical application would be a teacher says i want to be able to write on all of the i want to write down on this piece of paper and i want that to show up on my Zoom conference, or I want to be able to show that on the projector in my class, and we would put in something like a document camera. Now, the really good ones, the really expensive ones, obviously, are you know probably not what you want to not what you want to do at least until you know if this method is going to work for you. But I did find a, a, a Chinese USB two in one uh, document camera for seventy bucks on Amazon it has twenty nine hundred. Uh, four and a half star reviews. Now, I can't guarantee you that this camera is going to work 100% with Linux. However, I will tell you that I have yet to purchase a USB webcam um, that has some cheap Chinese camera inside of it that doesn't work right out of the box with Linux because they're fairly well understood at this point. Um, and so what I would do with this document camera is I would back it up to a point where it can see the entire chalkboard. Now, I don't know when you say you're working on a chalkboard. Is it a small one that you're working at at your desk? Is it a big one that's mounted on the wall? Um this is a 1440p camera, um, so it has enough resolution that I feel like you'd be able to get back far enough and 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 take a picture of it. Now, as to your question of um, uh, can you go back or or is there is there a uh, is is there a way to to capture a, a series of pictures? Um, what I would probably do is as you're working, capture a video of it. Uh, video recall is nothing more than a series of a bunch of still photos. And so if you, we were, if you're going the DSLR route where you had, you know, where everything was in pristine focus and pristine, um, framed up and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, in that case, what I would probably do is hang uh, a small piece of, um, black fabric around the, the border of your chalkboard. And then I would photograph the inside of it. And then in post, what I would do is chop off uh, where the black meets the green. And then you'll have a perfect representation of your, of your chalkboard also would probably help with uh, if the camera wasn't a hundred percent on angle, some of that stuff will, will, will get lost. Um, and this is what, and this is what we do, right? If you're going to do a, a large projection, you project and then have uh, the curtain come out just border the screen um, and then some of that light is absorbed by the curtain and it looks like it's an edge to edge picture. Um, so you could apply that same technique uh, to to this either with the document camera or DSLR. But I suspect with the 1440 uh, uh, resolution, you'll be able to back up far enough to capture that 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 chalkboard. And if you if, you, if all you had was FFmpeg running and yes, I can throw in a one liner that just spits that out to a video file or even a photo if that's really what you want. Um, certainly could do that, um, but I would I would record as you're doing the work, and then when you go back, um, you can say that's a point I want to save, that's a point I want to save, that's a point I want to save, and then just export those. Um, but the the um, the USB webcam is the Okayo Labs Okayo Cam O K I O Cam, and it is sixty nine dollars on Amazon. Available free shipping. I'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can check it out there. Our second email. Uh, is actually a response to a, an email that came in. And this comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Good day, Ask Noah and community. On show 226, you mentioned a person having issues with Chromebook Wireless. 
I would recommend all Chromebook users do the following. Back up the Chrome OS install, back up the data to a USB stick or hard drive, learn how to open the Chromebook up and change the right protect tab. Now, on most computers, this is literally a function of taking the back panel off and simply um, removing a screw. Download Mr. Chromebook firmware forked from Core Boot and CBIOS and download Gallium OS. Gallium OS is a custom fork edition of Lubuntu just for Chromebooks. It's standard Ubuntu with LXDE or XFCE with custom modifications and drivers for firmware. Also, I can confirm that the Endeavor OS works natively on the Toshiba Chromebook 2 CB35. You'll see on the Gallium OS it supports different ISO editions for different chipsets on the Chromebooks. To get around the wireless on Chromebooks, I... I've used, I've also bought a USB mouse, a USB network adapter. I update the Linux distro, Endeavor, Gallium, etc. on the Chromebook via LAN, which operates WPA supplicate. Then I manually type in the passphrase in the wireless manager, and then it connects. Otherwise, another method, but not recommended, is disabling WPA encryption on your wireless access point. The Chromebook will connect first time, update, reboot, then you can type in the passphrase, after you swap the AP router back to WPWPA. I'm really impressed with Endeavor OS. My own gripes would be the standard kernel instead of the Libra kernel, and it's using systemd dbus pulse by default. I really hope Pipewire can be used without GNOME or systemd, Wayland, or dbus support in the future, along with OBS, SM Player, Audacity supporting Pipewire. I'll have links for you for all of these, Gallium OS, Endeavor OS, and Mr. Chrome uh, Box. Dot tech in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Hopefully that helps you. Uh, if I, 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 it'd be interesting to know because you didn't specify if this works on that particular Broadcom chipset because I remember the question. So it'd be interesting to see. I'd like to hear from one of you if that ends up working out. Again, the phone number 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That is how you can participate in the discussion. Jordan joins us from Grand Forks. Hey, Jordan. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, good to talk to you again. Say, I had a question. Um, I'm looking to, to uh, share some photos with my, my parents, uh, not only me sharing with them, but them sharing with me. I have a NextCloud server uh, up and running in the cloud, but uh, to use it, I'd have to ask my parents to download an app and then give them another password to remember and, and try to teach them how to, uh, you know, upload photos. And I was wondering if there was an easier way to do it. Hmm. Well, would they be comfortable using like the web UI of Nextcloud? Uh, the web UI is, yeah, the web UI is, for my taste at least, it's cumbersome and I don't like it. And I can yeah. only imagine what they would think about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, what I would tell you, well, so there's a couple of different solutions. Uh, the 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 one that I'm playing with right now, and I mentioned a couple of times on the show, it's called PyWigo, P-I-W-I-G-O. And what I like about PyWigo is from what from what you're talking about, the 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 guest interface of you just send them a link and they click on the link and they can browse through the the, the photo album. If it's a private album, you can add a password or you can restrict access to only certain people. So from that aspect, it's absolutely fantastic. Where PyWigo kind of falls down a little bit and where I kind of have tended to favor NextCloud is the fact that 
you can't automatically upload photos from your phone to it. So you have to select which photos or which albums you want to upload into Piwego. And then from there, uh, your your friends and family would be able to access them. Uh, would that work for you? Maybe. I guess I've never really looked at Piwego before. I've heard you talk about it, but I, I've never never got that far. I might check that out if I were you, Jordan. The, uh, the, the other thing that I could... That, that, that's really the cleanest, that or Nextcloud is the cleanest solution. The, the only thing that I could think of outside of that, that, that might be an option, this would take some tweaking, is you could, no, I take that back. That, the, the, really, that's the, that's probably your best, most straightforward option if you don't want any client configuration on your, on your parents' end. If, if all you want to do is just, here's the thing, then you could do that. You, you could accomplish the same thing with C file, right? You could put all of the photos into a, a folder in C file and you could share that C file library with them. Again, that would be completely accessible in a web UI and the, the, the web UI for C file is substantially easier to browse. Then um, Nextcloud, from the standpoint that it, it the the only thing you're going to see is pictures or or videos. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll check that out. I got another question if we have time. Sure. So <clears throat> I just started playing with uh, Home Assistant and experimenting with some Z-Wave devices. Yeah. And my impression so far is. Uh, the Z-Wave devices that I have, they're, they seem kind of chinzy, kind of almost toyish-like. Are there any, like, industrial or professional-grade devices that I could use? Uh, I guess what, I'm, what I've been doing is I'm trying to get a, a good temperature monitor for one of the rooms in our house. It's a, a north-facing wall in the house, and in the winter, it gets really chilly in there, and so we try to control the temperature in that room with a... Uh, uh, some sort of plug-in heater. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to to control the, the, the temperature in that room with automation. Okay. Um, so there, so what, what, what kind of heating source is in there? I'm sorry. It's, uh, I don't even know the specific. It's like a, an oil-filled radiator that you plug into the wall, and it's got a, a knob on there where you can set it to high, low, or medium. Gotcha. Um, so I'll start with this. So as far as, as, as good high quality switches go, um, Leviton makes some really high end switches. Now you're going to pay for them. Um, they're 50, 60 bucks a piece. Um, but they're, they make very, very good switches. Um, uh, another company you might look at, it's not Z-Wave, but it is, um, it is again, very high quality switches, Lutron. Um, it will work natively with, um, Home Assistant, the only thing is you ha- there's a bridge that you have to purchase um, for t- to get the Lutron switches to work. The, th- the thing I like about Lutron over Z-Wave is the, is the fact that they actually they, – they all communicate in their own little network. And then once they're talking together and working well, then it has uh, the bridge that talks – or the main repeater, rather – that talks out to the network. And that is what interfaces with everything else. And so there's, there's, the switches are designed to be nothing other than really good in-wall light switches. They just happen to be controllable from a network interface. But even if the network interface goes down, the switch still functions as you would expect it to. Um, as far as your, uh, as far as your, your heater, there's two ways that you could solve that. The first is you could purchase a traditional switch and then you could switch a, a an outlet and then just have the outlet and then just plug the oil heater into the outlet. The probably more streamlined way to do that is to purchase what's known as an appliance module. And an appliance module will just plug one end into the outlet and the other end has just a female receptacle 
that you can plug a, plug a power device in. And then that becomes controllable from something like Home Assistant. So, for example, in every one of, in every room in my house, there are what we call accent lights. And so they're basically LEDs that can change colors and stuff. And they're put, you know, behind the TVs or around the frames of the window, stuff like that. And those are all controlled with appliance modules. And so all I want to do is turn the source on or off. And so I do that. It's also how, by the way, I, how I heat my, ba- my bathroom in the morning. Uh, when I get up in the way, when I, at the, at the my alarm goes off, and the first thing that happens is it turns on the heater in the bathroom, and that starts heating up the floor heat and all of that until I get in there and shower, and then when I walk out, then that motion detector turns everything back off. But um, again, that's being done with an appliance module. Much like you, I just have a little space heater in there. Yeah, I was trying to control the temperature, regulate the temperature of the room, mm-hmm. and I was using these little tri-sensors from, uh, what was it, I don't know, whatever, Anyways, they're battery operated and, you know, they're not always uh, awake and reporting the temperature to my home assistant hub. Mm. And so the room either gets really cold or it gets really warm. And so I was looking for a better way to, to well, monitor it. You know, here's so there the other thing that you could do um, is they have thermostats. This isn't so much automation as much as it is just a thing that you can use. But they have thermostats that, uh, yeah, here we go. So Global Industrial has one. I'll, I can put a link in the show notes for you. But essentially what it is, is it's a, it's a very simplistic device. You plug one end into the outlet, you set the temperature range, and then you plug your heater into the other side. And what happens is as the thermostat drops below the assigned temperature, here's a digital one for 30 bucks. Uh, as it drops below the assigned temperature, then it automatically turns power on to the load. And then when it drops below, it drops below the load. Now you could, you could get the, you could get to the same place by going a different way, right? You could, you could, um, you could put a, like a Honeywell Redlink thermostat in, tie that to Home Assistant. Then you could put in either Z-Wave or Lutron Radio Raw appliance modules to control the heater and then just create a rule in Home Assistant, say, hey, the trigger is when the temperature drops, when this sensor drops below this temperature, then turn this device on. When this thing raises to this temperature, then turn this device off. So, I mean, you could get there. It's just, it's kind of like going, it's kind of like going down to Minneapolis to get to Fargo. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's further out, but, but if you're, if you're looking for, to, to scale or to have more control over it, that's the better way to go. If you're if you're literally just interested in, I just want this room to stay this temperature. Um, I would get one. I would get something like a wireless temperature controlled outlet, and uh, and and turn that on or off. And I'll have a link for both of those for you in the show notes, and you can check them out and see if either of those fit your needs. Awesome. Those are great ideas. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Call back anytime. 1-855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in from Roger. Roger writes in and says, hello, Noah. While listening to episode 225, there was a question about docking stations and Linux. When I heard the discussion went to USB docking station, I paid attention since I have direct experience using the pluggable 3.0 docking station with the System76 Kudu laptop. System76 has excellent support and a support article at support.system76.com slash articles slash use dash docking dash stations. It lists System76 and community tested docking stations that work with System76 products. There's also a section for describing an install installation of the DKMS and display link driver. I believe that is the information that is useful to anyone trying to use a USB docking station with Linux. Best regards, Roger. So to the listener that wrote in a few weeks ago and said, hey, I'm having trouble with the WD-15, Dell docking station was having issues with it, 
called into System76. They w- weren't able to, to resolve the issue, couldn't figure this out. And so I bought a different docking station. That isn't, I bought the WD-15. I thought that was supposed to be the one and it didn't work. You might give this a shot. Although, again, I would say to you, there, the, and I, maybe it's just a lack of my understanding, but that the WD-15 should present all of its peripherals just as USB devices. So it should be no different than buying a USB video adapter and plugging it into the side of your computer, the system recognizing that, and then using it. I wouldn't think there would be a difference there. But if there is, you might check out that support article and see if in installation of that driver helps. Our next email comes in from Lucas. Lucas writes in, says, Hi, Noah. Love the show. Admire you as a person and the Linux community member as a geek. I have a desktop computer with a Ryzen 710, or excuse me, with an AMD Ryzen 7 1800X, 8-core processor, 16 gigs of RAM, a GeForce GTX 1050, and an AB350 Gaming K4 ASRock motherboard. The issue is the computer freezes out of the blue sometimes. After five minutes, after a few days, sometimes in the middle of the night. With the user logged in, with all the users logged out, no matter what is running. I've tried many distros, the latest being Ubuntu, Fedora, etc., my question is, where and how do I start debugging the issue, since the only thing I can do after a freeze is a hard reset? Very best regards. Thanks for all the hard work, Lucas. So, very first thing I would do if I did anything else, go look and see at the logs. See if there's anything that's being logged as to what is happening. Now, one of the things that you might uh, that you might try, it's kind of a weird thing to, to suggest, but press the caps lock key and pay attention to if the light toggles on or off. If the light toggles on or off, the kernel isn't locked, and the chances are there's going to be some useful logging information, or maybe you can drop by pressing Control-Alt-F1, drop down to a terminal, and see if you can dig into the back end, see if you can see what's going on. Take a look at what processes are running. Run FreeTACM and see how much memory is eaten up, and, 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 and step through that. Now, my guess is if it's sporadic hardware lockups and it happens when nobody's using the computer, I almost suspect something is going funky with the hardware. That can be a difficult thing to trace down. Uh, that can be an impossible thing to trace down, actually, um, without having a completely spare second computer that you can start swapping parts and seeing which one uh, gives you the problem. And when the problem is sporadic, it makes it difficult to even know if the next part is doing anything. But step one, look at the logs and see if you can find anything, if, if the system is logging anything. If it is, then you have something to Google or ask about or whatever. If you don't, then you're stabbing in the dark and it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Second thing I would do, strip out all of the peripherals that aren't absolutely necessary to the computer. Start by, if you can, start with just the power supply, the RAM, the, 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 the disk drive, and, um, and the motherboard, and see if the computer boots, and see if it'll run for a few days, and see if that has any problems. Then introduce the video card. Then introduce all of the extra uh, memory sticks. Then introduce all those things. And if any point along the way, like let's say you, 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 you pull all the stuff out, you put one RAM stick in, you put your M.2 drive in, you boot the thing up, and it runs. Runs fine. Goes two weeks. Okay, this is new. This doesn't happen. Now what? We go back and we go to add those memory sticks in. We start having problems. One of the things you might look at is first you have a bad RAM stick, but also try changing the slots that the memory sticks are in. Or again, starting with one and adding one back in until you find the problematic one. Um, Other things I've seen cause things to freeze, bad power supplies. The power supply is going out or if you have an inconsistent line voltage. That's being delivered, so you might look and see what your what your power uh, delivery looks like, and if there's there's power coming into the wall, if, if it's if it's dropping. Um, have seen some weird things. 
so so those are some of the things that you could do to try to get past and, and see if you can identify what the issue is. But without more information, it would be impossible to tell what's causing that system to lock up. The only thing I could tell you is that since I, I, I would strongly suspect I have a lot of machines running various latest distros of Linux, none of them lock up almost ever, let alone on a uh, on a reoccurring basis. So I would almost uh, I would almost guess that it is a it's a hardware thing. A typical kernel in the ch- in the chat room says stress the RAM with a boot disk like the ultimate boot CD. That's a great way to go too. Two uh, bit in the chat room says most Linux uh, distros have uh, memtest x86 for testing the memory. So that's another way that you could go through and and probably more definitive way to determine if there's something wrong with memory. But anyway, in any case, Lucas, good luck. And if you run into other problems, then give me a uh, then then reach back out. I also wanted to add Steve's response. Steve's guy who um, addresses a lot of the feedback that comes in and helps organize it into the show doc each week. And Steve didn't want to have to wait for me to get to this on Tuesday, so Steve had his own list of suggestions. Hi, Lucas. I'll get this question on the air as soon as next week, but I didn't want you to have to be waiting all of that time. Since this is a cross-distro problem, this seems like a RAM issue to me. I would grab Memtest, Memtest86, and start there. Most distros do have the Memtest built in. If you don't want to download a dedicated Memtest ISO, you can see if Fedora or Ubuntu have the option built into Grub. The open source version of Memtest is good, but I do like the freeware version of Memtest86 on their website. It has some limitations. If you do run memtest for multiple iterations and it hasn't found a problem, take the RAM out. Try cleaning it with a white eraser. There may be examples of this on YouTube or elsewhere. After you've cleaned and restarted, reseeded the RAM, the problem persists. Your next step is looking at journal CTL around the prop time of the, the, the crash and see if anything stands out. Other culprits, other than the CPU itself, if there was a known bug with a first-gen rising causing kernel panics, I myself had this and got my CPU RMA'd to AMD. Another possibility is the power supply. If it's not supplying enough current or the current is inconsistently distributed, this will cause problems. The symptom is so broad that you're going to have to try multiple components before identifying the root cause. I'm inclined to think it's hardware related. Good luck and let us know how you get on. Steve. Uh, Our sixth and seventh email is actually a small business related question from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, Hi Noah, I'm an IT industry professional who's been working for years in the enterprise space. Now I'm looking to get into consulting on my own. My background has been in Linux operations, security, development, etc. I'm most interested in development and the container space. How did you get started? Do you have any tips on finding and keeping customers as well as building something you own? Thanks in advance. Best, Jeremy. So the first thing, I get a lot of people that come up to me and they'll say things like, I want to do what you do. And I, I ask them, why? Why do you want to do what I do? And there's a couple of answers that that right off the bat that I tell them, you should go find something else to do. First thing they say, I want to make a lot of money. I, I, you seem like you make a lot of money. I want to make a lot of money. Okay, Don't do stuff for money. It's a bad reason. That doesn't seem like you. But the second thing that people will tell me is they'll say, I don't want to have my, I don't want to work for a boss. I, I want to be my own boss. I just, let me tell you something. When you start your own company, you don't get rid of your boss. You just have a lot of them and you have to, and you have to appease all of them and they all have different standards and they all have different ways of communicating. And there is no HR to go to, um, when your boss doesn't like you, they just won't call you anymore. They just won't hire you back. And so you have to, you have to, you have to develop a keen sense of, of reading people. And so. Uh, here, here would be my advice to you. First of all, cold calling sucks. So don't spend any time with cold, cold calling. Don't worry about trying to get customers. That's not going to work. Um, 
uh, it's not that there's no place for cold calling. It's not that 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 you sh- that you should be ashamed or embarrassed or 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 shouldn't bother with walking into a place and saying, "Hey, I know you got somebody doing something, but I'm going to make you a better deal." Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that if you want to try. It just has a very low success rate. Um, personally, what I would tell you to do is start by giving samples. Uh, when you walk into Sam's Club, one of the reasons that my my family and I always walk out uh, with something out of the frozen food section is because it was on sample that day. My kids tried it. They liked it. I tried it. I liked it. My wife went back for two or three. Oh, we just had to buy it, right? Do that with your customers. One of the first uh, hotels that we ever did Wi-Fi for, I went in and they had purchased uh, access points, cheap, crappy, consumer-grade access points. And they said, we want you to put these in. And I said... I'll put in whatever you want, but I don't think this is going to work very well. They said, no, we, just, we have them. We just put them in. Okay. So climb up in the ceiling, put all the access points in. As expected, it was a colossal disaster. And so a few weeks later, they called and said, this is, this is just terrible. I said, here's what we can do. You buy 15 of my access. Well, I'll just bring 15 of my access points over. And I'm going to put them in your hotel. And you run with them for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, I'll come back. If you tell me that you've had no problems and everything is great and it solved all of your problems and you write me a check for those 15 access points. If I'm wrong, it doesn't solve your problem. When I show up, just tell me, didn't solve my problem. And I'll go call up in the ceiling, I'll pull them all out and you can go back to your consumer ones and go find someone else. That's how confident I am that I can solve your problem. Now, I made that gamble, I suppose you could call it, because I knew, I knew from my professional experience that Though that that cheap consumer grade access points were not going to power 250 people inside of a hotel. I also knew that the Unify UAC Pro would if installed every 25 feet inside the hotel rooms, not crammed inside of a hallway, stuff like that. Right. Pay attention to how that stuff is laid out. Um, I knew I could solve their problem. And so I was willing to say, hey, I'll put my money where my mouth is. It doesn't cost you anything. So first, it does a couple of things. So first of all, trust is impossible to purchase. You can't purchase it. You You have to earn it. And trust is earned when you give your word and you keep your word. So in that particular scenario, I went in, put the access points in. Sure enough, 30 days later, I showed up and they had the check waiting. Like there wasn't even a question. They were thrilled. Like this solved our problem. You did what we asked you to do. Here's a check. Take my money. And they've been a client ever since. Um, Another hotel early on went in and uh, looked at it and I, I misjudged. I They had good access points. And I looked at them. And I said, yeah, we should be able to make that work. And he says, how much would it cost? And I think I told him it would be, you know, two, three hundred bucks for us to go through and reprogram uh, a couple of access points. And I figured out that that should be no big deal. Right. Reprogram all the access points. I leave about 20 minutes later. I get a call. They're down again. They're down again. Drive back over there. What in the world is going on? Maybe the switch needs to be replaced. Maybe the router. So bring in a whole bunch of other stuff. Put everything new except the access points. Access points still fail. Okay, something wrong with the access points. So I go back in, pull all the access points out, put UAC pros. So th- at this point, we have some considerable networking gear that we put in. We went back, put their old router and their old switch back in, but still cost a considerable penny. Uh, and when he got, we got done and he said, well, how much do I owe you? And I said, well, it's 200 bucks. And he goes, 200 bucks. You just, you were here for three days. You did this, 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 and this. I said, I know, but I told you when you, when I came in here, this is what it was going to cost to solve the problem. So that's what you're going to pay to solve the problem. And that particular client, not only did we continue to serve his hotel on, uh, through two different ownership transfers, 
Um, he has since gone on to work at in the restaurant industry, and we picked up the restaurants that he worked at. And then he came back into the hospitality industry, and we picked up those hotels we worked at. And he would tell you today, if you sat down with him, the reason he still does business with Alta Speed Technologies is because, you know, 13 years ago or 12 years ago, when he called on a Saturday and said, I need somebody to come out here to fix my internet and nobody else will come. And, and, and Noah showed up with his tool bag and a couple access points and told him, this is what I'm going to charge you, and this is how I'm going to fix your problem. And I stuck by my word. That earned a level of trust that I've been able to I've been able to use uh, in 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 building that relationship over the, you know, the past 10 plus years. Uh, and it's been it's been incredibly beneficial. And so when when we go into clients, uh, oftentimes one of the things I'm counting on is that my word has to count for something when I come in and when I tell you you need to spend X amount of dollars to fix your problem. Customers have to believe that, and that has to be the absolute truth. There can't be at any point in time, nobody can ever look back at my decision and say, well, you didn't have to do that. He was just kind of not honest. You have to be brutally honest. And, and the way that I find to do that is focus on serving the customer well. Focus on serving the customer well, and everything else will simply fall into place. I meet people all day long. I'm working with people today uh, that... Everything to them is about money and everything to them is about ROI and profit and time and efficiency and all the things, right? And I, I'm sure AltaSpeed Technology is not the most profitable company, probably doesn't have the highest rate of return. We don't have any metrics saying that, you know, we get all of the, all, we don't have, you know, all the sales things are right in our sales numbers. We don't do any of that. We focus on treating customers well. There isn't a, there isn't a single piece of networking gear. At any client we have ever served in the past 15 years since we started in 2009, n- nowhere is there a piece of equipment that I wouldn't put in my own house. And often, much to the dismay of my wife, often do put in my own house. And part of that comes from that integrity of when I come in and tell you this is the device that you should buy, understand that it's the device that I would buy with my own money. And so as, as you're going out there uh, and, and you're going to hang your own shingle, Start with that in mind. If you're the customer, what would you want someone to do for you? How would you want someone to treat you? How can you own their problem, own their business, own their thing to the point that they don't want to go anywhere else because you're the guy that's going to take the best care of them? That's how you build a customer base. And and, and as, as far as like how to get started, again, giving samples away. So going into a place and saying, hey, here's a card it's good for two hours of free consulting or it's good for this plus parts or whatever it is. Find a way to give samples of your work. Find a way uh, to, to, to let people try before they buy. And, and that's going to do a couple of things. First of all, get your foot through the door. Second of all, you're the good guy because you're offering something without asking for something. And third, and most importantly, it's, it's a really raw, honest way to build trust. If you're not asking anything from the client, then they owe you nothing. And so if you can deliver something without asking for something, you're delivering something without charging for something, there's no reason for you to lie. There's no motivation in it. If you don't deliver on your promise, then then, then you've just wasted your time, right? And and most business owners are, are pretty hip to that. And, and let me tell you something else. One of the largest – early on, that's what I struggled with as well, right? I sat there and I thought, how do I get more customers? How do I grow my company? How do I – you know, that's the kind of stuff that your mind focuses on. I will tell you that hindsight being 2020, in 2021, I look at things now and I think to myself, man, I wish we could concentrate on serving fewer customers better than more customers at a time because the – 
when you have customers that you are able to serve well and you're able to deliver excellence to them every time without exception and they know that they can count on you, uh, it first of all, it makes sales really easy because you walk in there and say you, you should buy a $10,000 server and they go, okay, when is it showing up? Because they don't question it because every other time you've made a recommendation, it has it has absolutely been the right call for, for them in that situation. And so when you're talking about spending more money, they don't hesitate. Um, so anyway, all that to say uh, that that's the direction I would go down. I would st- there is a book you might consider um, going through. It is written by uh, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and it is called Thou Shall Prosper. And it's written from a Jewish perspective. The idea that 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 people from a from a Jew- Jewish heritage are called uh, by their faith to succeed in business. But the practical things that that Rabbi Daniel Lappin points out in that book. Uh, apply to anybody in any space of any uh, of any particular belief system. You don't have to uh, you don't have to subscribe to the Jewish faith um, to to take the lessons out of it. So I would highly recommend checking that out. Our last email is from Sean in Wisconsin. Sean writes in and says, "Hey, I'm a listener from the beginning, but the first time writing in. First, let me say thank you for the show and the community. I've been a Debian, Ubuntu, and CentOS user for several years, and I followed you through a few podcasts over the years." Second, I've recently started working at a small business and a growing company. We are a team of three so far, and we're having trouble coordinating information. I'm exploring ways of creating a central repository of information for the team. Things like network setup, device, software setup, how-tos, etc. I want people to be able to access this information from a mobile device and from a computer, mainly accessed from inside the company network. External secure access would be a bonus. What are some recommendations? Third, being in charge of the network, how can I inventory and monitor the network, i.e. switches, routers, access points, computers, printers, etc.? I found Spiceworks, but I'm not sure about it. Fourth, I would like to find a ticket system or project task tracking system so we can use internally between the three of us. Something easy and flexible for future expansion would be a bonus. Sorry for the lengthy email. Keep up the awesome show. Sean from Wisconsin. So, in order... Central repository of information. So there's a couple ways you can take, you can tackle that. You absolutely can do that just through GitLab, GitHub, that kind of thing, right? And there are plenty of companies that do that. It's becoming a very popular way of organizing a team or a project or whatever else. I've also seen, not that I necessarily agree with it, but I've also seen a lot of people using chat software um, to organize tasks and stuff like that and using add-ons and so on and so forth. If I were going down that route, I would do it, I would do it one of, one of three ways. The first is if you're trying to create a central repository of information, sounds a lot like a wiki, right? And so if you think about having an internal company wiki, that's probably the most uh, defined way to take a bunch of information that probably is available on all sorts of different sources from links to photos to pictures to, or excuse me, links to photos to text to whatever, uh, and embedding them all in a page that anybody in the, the, the network can browse. And of course you can um, put that on an internal server so that only your your staff can get to it. That's one way you could do it. Now you said that you're interested in um, in tracking inventory, things like network setup, devices, software setup, so on. Um, that is something that we just started doing with Snipe IT, and man, we couldn't be more happy about it. Um, and so that's how we're tracking what actual devices that are first of all that we buy and sell as a company, but the other thing is what we're at, what's actually in use in the companies. We have you know x amount of laptops for our technicians and salespeople and administrative people and all that. Um, when were those laptops purchased? When should we replace them? What software is on them? All that kind of stuff. 
Uh, and, and all of that is being tracked by Snipe IT. It's specifically built for an IT company. So I'd highly, highly recommend that. Now, back to your knowledge base information, or excuse me, the, the, um, the, the information, uh, the central repository of information. So like a wiki or a knowledge base. The other way that you could do this, and this kind of ties into your fourth question. You said you'd like to find a ticket system or project task tracking that you can use internally. So I started with OS ticket, um, with, the only thing I wanted OS Ticket to do was I wanted to be able to create a ticket for a customer. I wanted to be able to outline what it is I did for that customer. And then I wanted to mark the status of pending billing so that our billing people would notice and that client an invoice. And that's it. That's all I wanted them to do. And then they changed it to closed. Didn't care about email tickets. Didn't care about the API. Didn't care about the knowledge base. Didn't care about users having access to it. Didn't care. Didn't care about any of it. Right. And that's that's how we used OS Ticket for a good long time. And then as the company grew and as we started to get more and more into remote support, and certainly as COVID took off, um, we had the need to grow. And and I've, I'll be darned if well, we've been in business since 2009, we've yet to come across a situation that OS Ticket isn't capable of handling. Now, the API is incomplete, and so access from a mobile device is not perfect. There is an OS Ticket app, but it's not great. Um, the web UI works okay on mobile. Uh, but the actual software itself and the design itself is so fantastic, specifically for IT companies that it's, it would be, I, I would, I would not be doing due diligence if I didn't at least mention it. The reason that OS Ticket jumps immediately to me to the top of the list of something that you might want to check out is because not only will it do ticketing, but it also has a built in knowledge base. And so you could have the central, uh, central repository of information, uh, in OS Ticket. In fact, that's exactly what we do. And, it, the other thing that I'll allow you to do is when you come across a problem, if every problem is a ticket, which in IT, that's what we would ideally like, right? Because then it can be tracked and all that. Once that thing is solved, you can mark that ticket as a knowledge base item. So the next time that somebody says, hey, how do I get the iSCSI driver in the Windows? Or, okay. All right. Uh, we already solved that. Just click on the thing. Just search in the knowledge base. It's in there. Um, and so you start to get, uh, you start to build over time a collection of knowledge of how to uh, of how to fix things. Now, as as far as actually tracking the um, the 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 monitoring of the network, because that's not going to be done by an inventory software. Uh, for that, I would use something like Libra NMS. Um, there are a couple of them. There are a couple of network monitoring solutions that are out there. Zabbix is another really popular one. Uh, lately, I've been hanging out with Libra NMS, and I think that's ultimately going to be. Um, the monitoring system that we go with long term, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And the web UI is 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 slick. Um, so that'll allow you to keep an eye on most of that stuff. And so if you if you did a mixture of that Libra NMS and Snipe IT, um, then you would both track the inventory, the hardware, physical devices, and you'd be able to track how it's functioning on the network. Um, and if you didn't want to go with OS ticket, if you, you you look at it and it's just not for you, or maybe the maybe the mobile part of it just really does kill it for you, um, which is I can certainly understand that because it's not great. Um, then I would look at something like Nextcloud. And the reason I would look at Nextcloud is a couple of reasons. First of all, Nextcloud with Dex is fantastic. It Dex is a Kanban system that allows you to create cards and then uh, do tasks. Now we're working on just a monster install. Right now, it's probably going to take us three weeks uh, to complete it. And um, 
and 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 so in that project, obviously, there's there's a, a bunch of different rooms, and then there's a bunch of things that have to happen in the room. So you know, you might need phones and and printers and access control and cameras and access points and whatever, right? And so all these things have to go to separate places. And of course, each one of those things, really in itself, is its own little project because you can't just throw an access point up there. It's got to have the mount, has to have the screws, you have to have a box, you have to have the, all the little things that go into that. You have to be able to outline. What Nextcloud Deck allows you to do is create the card for Susie's office. And then inside of the card for Susie's office, put workstation, phone, access point, printer, access control. And then each one of those can have subtasks like Susie's workstation has to be fresh install of operating system, must contain email client, web browser, office suite, has to have uh, network drives mapped has to have these printers installed and then you you can break that down and so and so any particular part of a project i can zoom in or out as much as i want and so when i'm when i'm when i'm there when i'm working with the guys and we're getting stuff done i i pick a task in deck i i claim it and i'm and i'm working on it and that's that's the thing that i'm doing and i'm updating information as i get done then when i put my 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 general manager's hat back on and i go to talk to the client and say here's where we're at I zoom back out. I, I close that task. I get back out. And I look at how many tasks do we have all together? What ones have we ticked off? What ones do we have to do? It doesn't matter where they are in those particular tasks. All I really need to know is that they're not done. And the ones that are done doesn't really matter what little microscopic things you had to go through to get that task done. All I really need to know is that the task is done. And so it, the, from the management perspective, as well as a I'm in the grind and working on it perspective, both of those things I find deck to be just entirely indispensable. And so I would recommend you check that out as well. Now, where I would differ between deck and OS ticket is primarily if you're going to do things internally or externally. OS ticket is really nice uh, because it allows you to categorize by customers. And so for us, it's indispensable because we're an IT shop. We have <laughs> there is no there is no like switch or router or thing to keep track of because it's different on every single site for every single client. And some some clients have multiple sites. And so that has to be tracked as well. Um, and so OS ticket allows us to do that. It also allows uh, us to s assign a domain so that, you know, when we get tickets from one particular client, we know which organization that they work for and what users are there and all of that. Um, so when you get to that scale, OS ticket is indispensable. But if it's just the three of you and you have no interest in, in communicating with outside cl customers or clients or something like that, then you might be able to get away with something like deck. Our pick of the week this week is an airline management game. Now, this is completely open source. This is version two of an online airline management game. The goals, completely open source and free. No ads. It relies on donations to keep the servers running. Also, they deliver the best passenger behavior and flight pattern simulation in the genre. They focus on macro management aspects and try to avoid the micro management. So in other words, you're not doing things like, hey, this plane only has 356 seats and you have, you know, 359 passengers. You, know, you don't have to do any of that. They are aiming to foster a friendly game community so players love and strategize with alliance mates or simply chill out in with other players in the game chat. Now, the game has attracted 7,000 registered players since its inception about three years ago, and version 2 has launched. You can read more at v2.airline-club.com. It's going to be a brand new world with various groundbreaking changes. Now, if you like... Uh, broad game strategy games, then you're sure you're going to, uh, you're going to find the appeals with Airline Club. It's basically a, 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 a spirit sequel of Aerobiz, if you've ever played that. 
plus some capitalism and civilizations. Some players have been playing on the game since three years ago and are eagerly helping beta test version two, 700 registered players uh, for version two testing so far. Um, so this started really as a hobby. It's kind of cool. Almost three years ago, he was the, the, the developer was playing for an online airline management game, and it was pretty fun, but he was disappointed at the over, overly simple nature of passenger demands, and everything is... Everything was just too simple and it it just, it wasn't realistic. And so he wanted to take a stab at writing his own airline game. And the focus was to simulate real passenger behavior. And so every virtual passenger uh, will try to get to his destination with, of, uh, with a variety of different factors. So the factors are based on things like pricing. How much does your flight cost? The quality of the flight, the fleet, the age, the crew of service, you know, the, the, the service crew, the in-flight service, all of those kinds of things. Brand awareness and loyalty is going to affect what passengers choose. Transit, length of travel, so how long you, how long the flights are, lounges and shuttles that you have available, plus economy business first class, what options are available. And so every passenger is going to have his or her own preference. Some are going to prefer faster flights. Others are going to prefer a more time sensitive flight. But the goal is to create a sophisticated simulation and trim away all of the micromanaging bits that don't add any fun to the game. And, 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 you know, like scheduling airplanes, those kinds of things. And so the game has now evolved into a more developed game. And, uh, and that's, that's why we're bringing it up on the show. So solid in-game economy. They support bank loans, oil contracts, those kinds of things, mutual, uh, country relationships, alliance systems, flight code sharing, in-game events such as the Olympics. And since the last year, they tried to, they decided to try to take another big leap and introduce various elements that warrant a new version. That is, version two. And that's what the, the video, which we'll have a link for you in the show notes shows. It improves game with, uh, with, uh, delegation and negotiation with systems for the airports, dynamic airline and country relationships, as well as a more dynamic loyalist system. Airlines, uh, would need to fight against, uh, other airlines to gain loyalty of the airport. So I, I, I you know, here's the thing there. It's rare that a game gets my attention because I, one, I just don't have a lot of time for it. But then two, if it's not something that I can just, you know, zone out and, you know, really, so what that means is it just has to be a first person shooter. I'm not usually interested. However, this piques my interest. I do a ton of traveling for work and I have seen time and time. I've watched passengers get into a, a full out screaming match with the gate agent because, because something critically wrong with the airplane is preventing the pilots from wanting to take it into the air. But they have that wedding that they just have to get to. And so, and so they're going to sit there and yell at the gate agent. It's just funny to me. So to see that that actually has become a game and, and how you would manage that kind of in that roller coaster tycoon like model and then add to the fact that it's an open source game designed by a guy who specifically wanted to bring a game into the world that didn't contain ads and was written from the ground up to be open source. And so those kinds of simulation, simulation style games. Uh, something very cool. I invite you to check that out. Just a couple of minutes left in the episode. We're going to try to get to some of the news this week. Brave is blocking Flock. Now, if you're not familiar with Flock, it boils down to a effort by Google to change your recent browsing activity into a behavioral label and then sharing that label with websites and advertisers. Google and other advertisers have essentially proposed dozen of bird-themed technical standards. Pigeon, turtle dove, sparrow, swan, uh, spurfowl, pelican, parrot. 
And, and, and the idea here is that it's designed to perform one of the functions that was previously being performed by targeted advertising ecosystem done by cookies. So Flock is designed to help advertisers perform those behavioral targeting without third party cookies. And so a browser with browsing habits will then use that information to assign its user to a cohort or a group of users with similar browsing habits of some definition or similar definition. And then the idea that the user's browser will share the cohort ID indicating which group they belong to and with web, with which websites and advertisers. And obviously, so from a privacy standpoint, this is, this is horrendous. This is horrific. Uh, cohorts, uh, will be recalculated on a weekly basis, meaning that there's the advertisers are going to quite frankly have access to a lot of information that they didn't have before. And it is the other thing is it makes it terrible for fingerprinting where you are looking for unique aspects of a browser and when they become unique enough to distinguish you from other users, this, of course, pushes that ball further down the court because now these organizations are going to have that cohort ID. And if they already have information on you, then they can combine it with the cohort ID to get even more information and then use that to fingerprint. Um, and so, I, you know, scary stuff that's going on here. Uh, Brave has taken a stand as well as DuckDuckGo. Um, so we'll continue to uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on it as it rolls on. You're affected if you're using a version of Chrome 87 or newer. Music in my ears means we're out of time. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next week, next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. dot